Okay, guys, welcome back to our teaching in the book of Matthew. Now, the last time we were here, we were in chapter 16, where we were dealing with Jesus' continued training of his disciples. One of those necessities in their training was the purity of doctrine, or should I say teaching? And this is what we saw when we saw the Pharisees coming to Jesus asking for a messianic sign and Jesus refused to give them any further proof that he was the Messiah. Remember what we said as of Matthew chapter 12, the messianic offer was off the table as far as Israel was concerned. And Matthew chapter 13 and following Jesus was preparing for this new kingdom that he talked about according to those particular parables. But nevertheless, so they asked for this sign and Jesus rejected their sign and said the only sign that they will be given is the sign of resurrection. And it was from this particular issue that he began to tell his disciples to beware of the leaven or the doctrine or the teachings of the Pharisees. And then Jesus moved on as he was demonstrating not only his power and authority, but also his persons. And this is what we also see in the training of his disciples. Were they able to understand or to realize something more significant that he was simply other than the Messiah? Or should I even say it this way? Just who is the Messiah? Now, is he simply a man? What is the nature of the Messiah? And now we're not going to rehash all of those instances of examples that Jesus gave. But he finally came to the point in trying to determine whether or not they understood his true nature. That is, that he was not simply a man, but he was also God. And so what did he ask his disciples? He was asking them, who do people say that he was? The people gave him, the disciples said, the people gave him a great name, you know, Elijah or Jeremiah, or even John the Baptist that is risen from the dead. And then Jesus asked them the particular question, who do you say that I am? And it was Peter who answered for the group. And he said that Jesus was the Christ, that is the Messiah. But not only was he the Messiah, Peter had come to understand that he was also a divine being. And that's what it meant to be when, when he said the son of God, he is calling him one who bears the nature and being of God. So he is saying, you are God. You are God with us. So Peter called him both man and God. He understood the dual nature of the Messiah. And then Jesus praised him about this, letting him know that this revelation did not come from himself or from others, but it was a revelation that could only come from God the Father. And so it was at that point that Jesus began to reveal to them the further plans that that was re reserved for himself. That is that he should go to Jerusalem, be condemned by the leaders of the people, ultimately put to death, be resurrected from the dead. Now, even though Peter just gave this wonderful revelation concerning the person of Christ, he now being used by Satan because it is Jesus who rebukes Satan. That he that he saw using Peter at this time. But nevertheless, 
Peter began to try to convince Jesus not to take this route, not to allow himself to be put to death in Jerusalem. It seemed like that's the only thing that they heard. They didn't really hear the thing about resurrection from the dead. That was never really thought about. It was always about Jesus being put to death. So Peter tried to convince Jesus, mercy to you, Lord. And Jesus rebuked Peter and told him that True discipleship, and this is the very end of chapter 16. True discipleship means to give up what you want, to give up your way and follow after the way of God. And so therefore, let us end now with the review of chapter 16. But as we, as we did in chapter 16, Jesus gave them a certain pro prophetic promise as he was saying to his disciples. And, and in a, it's in a sense like, to, 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 you know, because he's revealing to them he's going to die. And he's also revealing to them that he's going to be resurrected from the dead. But the thing that keeps giving them grief, and we'll see this again, even in chapter 17, is the fact that he tells them that he must die. And I can understand that. We don't want our Lord to suffer and die. But as he said in chapter 16, it is necessary that Jesus must die. He must die for the sins of the world. But nevertheless, but never, even though he says these things and the disciples are still confused because in the mind of the disciples, the Messiah, once he should come, he should reign forever. And this thing about death, they just cannot bring that into their calculus. So it's, it's depressing to them. But nevertheless, Jesus makes a statement and, and no doubt he says this to strengthen their faith. He says that there be some of you standing here who should not taste of death until you see the son of man coming in the glory of his father. And the, in other words, a, 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 the coming of the kingdom. And that's what Jesus talked about. That's the last thing that he said. Some of you will see me in the glory of my kingdom. And that's how chapter 16 ended. Okay. But so now let's get into chapter 17 <laughs> before I fumble anymore, but let's get into chapter 17 and talk about how this final statement of Jesus was actually fulfilled. And this we will see in what we call a prefigurement. That is once again, the last statement that Jesus made in 16 was some of you will see the son of man in his coming kingdom. Chapter 17 gives us a fulfillment of these things. Okay, so now let's go. 17 and 1. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, get up 
and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, tell the vision to no one until the son of man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Okay, so now let's talk about this event. As I've already said, it fulfills Jesus' spoken word that he said that he would be, that they would see him coming in the glory of his kingdom. And what we have here is in the transfiguration is a prefigure, and this is what you have to see. It is a prefigure of what Jesus will be like in the kingdom. That is, just in case you guys don't understand it. When Jesus, okay, for right now, let me just break it down. We know that our Lord has, has died, paid for our sins, been resurrected from the dead after 40 days, ascended to heaven to the right hand of God, where he is now and has been for almost 2,000 years, as the scriptures say, making intercession for us. So Jesus is in heaven. When Jesus returns and says that this will be this, what we call the second advent, the return of Jesus. Now, first, there will be the return in the rapture. First Thessalonians chapter four. This is when Jesus comes in the cloud. He does not return to the earth. This is the coming in the cloud and the dead in Christ, those Christians who died and those Christians who are alive shall be caught up. Into, in, by that cloud, in other words, they will be transfigured. This is Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There will be a resurrection of the dead and the dead will be given new bodies and those who are alive will be given new bodies without having to die. And we will all, both the dead and the, in Christ and those who are alive, we will be caught up with Jesus and we will ascend back. We will return back into heaven during the period of what we call the tribulation period. Now, I'm not going to get into all of those issues concerning eschatology. That is what takes place in the last days. But I'm telling you these things so that you can get an idea of the order of events and what is actually taking place. So after the rapture of the church, okay, and this is only Christians, then after the tribulation period, this is when we see in Revelation chapter 19, will be the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. And when Jesus returns to the earth this time, and this is what we, we call the second advent. This time when Jesus returns to the earth, this is when he will set up his kingdom. And it is at the, the second advent, the setting up his kingdom, we will have the resurrection of the Old Testament saints. This is when the Old Testament saints are now resurrected. 
Okay. And then at the resurrection of the Old Testament saints, we will also have the establishment of the Jewish kingdom as well as the judgment of the Gentiles. Now, we're not going to get into all of those particular events, but nevertheless, this is what I want you to understand about what the second advent is all about. The return of Jesus in the setting up of his kingdom. Who will be in that kingdom? It will be the Jewish people involved in that kingdom with the resurrection of the Old Testament saints. And it will also be the return of Jesus with the, res with the resurrected uh, church saints, as well as those church saints who were translated. That is, their bodies went through a change without having to go through death who also came back with Jesus. So all of the saints of God in the kingdom. But the point here is what will the kingdom be like? And even more so, what will Jesus look like? This is the point of Matthew chapter 17. What will the kingdom be like? More particularly, what will Jesus himself look like? All right. Now with that, let's get into the text and it makes it easy at this point. I hope so. Six days later, that is six days after Jesus made that prophetic statement about those. There will be some standing there that will see Jesus in the power and glory of his kingdom. Six days later, Jesus took with him three witnesses. Peter, James and John to a very high mountain. And we don't know exactly what that mountain will be like. Some think it may have been Mount Hermon. We don't know. The scriptures didn't say, and I'm not going to waste a lot of time speculating on what that mountain was. But nevertheless, Jesus was transfigured before them. And that comes from the word metamorphosis in the Greek. Metamorphothe is the actual word that is being used here. Jesus was the true nature of Jesus. In other words, imagine like the true nature, the true physical being essence of Jesus shone through his flesh. You see what the disciples saw during the time that they walked with Jesus on the earth was nothing more than a physical shell. That was not the essence of his true nature. What Jesus allowed to happen and allowed to be seen was a, a part. It was not even the full. It was not even the fullness of his true nature. Why? Because no man can stand in the full presence of God and live. We know that when Moses himself asked God, he said, let me see you. I want to see your glory. And what was the response of God? No man can see my glory and live. So they did not see the full glory of Jesus. They saw a part of his glory, but the glory that they did see was the glory that will be revealed in the coming kingdom of Jesus. That is that second advent that we were just telling you about. And what did it consist of? What was it like? What was Jesus like? Verse number two, when he changed before them, his face shown like the sun. Okay. These are not just simply words, but can you imagine? I myself cannot imagine what it must have looked like for his body to begin to glow for his face to shine in the power of the sun. Think about it. 
none of us can look directly at the sun. So that means that the disciples themselves couldn't even look directly at the face of Jesus if it shone like the sun. And it did. His face shone like the sun. His clothing began to shine as his body glowed even through them. Clothing became white as light. And then we also saw there were two men who appeared talking with Jesus. That is Moses and Elijah. And I believe it was Luke who said that they talked about Jesus. The conversation that they had with Jesus was about his upcoming death in Jerusalem. But nevertheless, there was Moses and Elijah that appeared with Jesus. Now, there is so much that we can talk about in the appearance of Moses and Elijah with Jesus. We can talk from one sense. We can say they are representatives. Uh, that is Moses. It can be a representative of the saints who died because knows it. Notice here, these, these both Moses and Elijah are in resurrected form. So Moses saints who have died and have been resurrected again, Elijah, remember Elijah never died. He is sent. He was simply translated. Translated means to go through a supernatural change and then ascended into heaven. The supernatural change simply is to be given an immortal body without having to die first. Okay. So Elijah having been translated into heaven without seeing death. So we can see a representation of the dead being resurrected in the kingdom and those who did not die in the kingdom. That can be an identification for Moses and Elijah. Also, we can also see to this Moses and Elijah being representative of both the law as well as the prophets in Christ is the fulfillment of both what the law, Jesus fulfills the law and in his fulfillment of the law, what does he do? He brings the law to an end. And also Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophets. Everything that the prophet said the Messiah would do, what he would do in his first coming as he would die for the sins of the world, Isaiah 52 and 53, and also what the Messiah would do in the establishment of the kingdom. And this is what the big thought was in the mind of the Jewish people, as well as the disciple, the establishment of the kingdom. He fulfills Moses, the law and the prophets, the expectation even of the future kingdom. And that's the essence of what we're talking about right now. Jesus view or his uh, preview in the future kingdom, the law and the prophets fulfillment and prophetic fulfillment, fulfillment of the law to close it, prophetic fulfillment, fulfillment of the expectations of the prophet, that which has not yet come. But the bottom line is what Jesus is giving them is a preview of the messianic kingdom, notably a preview of himself what he will be like in the kingdom. Okay. So, so the point, let's go back to the commentary. So Peter, uh, uh, is astounded by the events and no doubt Peter, James, and John are all astounded by the events. Peter, not knowing what to say, 
having somewhat of an understanding. Peter showed somewhat of an understanding of the events because, and I don't want to get into all of the details, but it is, it is uh, related to the Feast of Tabernacles. This is the seventh feast that God had commanded the Jews, Leviticus chapter 23, when God commanded the Jews to make booths to symbolize the 40 year wandering in the wilderness, how God had provided for them during the 40 year wandering in the wilderness and to make these little booths or huts. And they would stay in these huts for a certain number of days. And this was to memorialize the event of God's provision for them. It was a looking in the past, but also the Feast of Booths, also called Tabernacles, which is what Peter made here, Tabernacles. The Feast of Booths looked forward to the coming of the age of the Messiah. It looked forward to a coming of age of peace when the Messiah would come and bring peace to the world and establish uh, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel as the chief of the nation, or bring in the kingdom of the Messiah. This is what we keep talking about, the upcoming kingdom. So Peter understood in some sense or another, this event that is taking place is some sort of a fulfillment, a shadow fulfillment, not the true fulfillment, not the ultimate fulfillment, but a shadow of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booze. And so what does Peter do? He offered to build booze, tabernacles for Jesus, for Moses and Elijah. And so when Peter made this particular offer, we saw the Shekinah glory cloud. Remember, we often see that cloud in the Old Testament, this bright cloud that symbolized the presence of God. So this bright cloud began to overshadow them and the voice of God began to speak that spoke of Jesus as the son of God in whom the father was well pleased. So once again, we have the witness of the person of Jesus that he is God's son. And then we also have the witness that God was well pleasing to Jesus and God simply said to hear him. And at this, the, the disciples fell on their face and they were shocked with great Fear. And that word literally means they were scared out of their minds. So whatever, however God communicated that with that great voice, it scared them to the pit of their stomachs. And so when this began to happen, Jesus came and touched them and told them, don't be afraid. They got up, they looked around and all of a sudden Moses and Elijah was gone. So there is great symbolism, no doubt, to what is what is taking place here. But number one, let's remember the, the main point is to prefigure, to show or to demonstrate what will the kingdom be like? What will the kingdom consist of? What will Jesus be like in the future kingdom of the Messiah? In the future kingdom of the Messiah, Jesus will be a glorious figure. Remember, that's what it's all about, about the face shining like the lightning in the clothing. So Jesus, if you want to know what Jesus will be like, this is what he will be like. This is what he will look like. If you want to know who will be in the kingdom, saints who have died will be resurrected. Saints who have never died will be in that kingdom in translated bodies 
along with those normal people because, you know, okay, let me just slow it down. Peter, James, and John represent themselves regular human beings who will be in the kingdom. Because notice, Moses, those who died, resurrected. Elijah, those who never died, translated, given new eternal bodies who never died. Peter, James, and John, normal human beings who will populate the kingdom. And I don't have time to get into all of those details. Just remember, just remember that the kingdom is established after the tribulation. That is after all of these events that you see in Revelation chapters four through 19. And it is through chapters four through 19, the majority of the human race will be destroyed. And I, I open a can of worms, but I don't have time to get into it. But nevertheless, so many people will die in the tribulation. Remember, Jesus said these words concerning the tribulation, except those days were shortened, no flesh would survive. So it would be a great deal. Over half of humanity will die in a seven year period. But all I'm simply trying to say is concerning Peter, James, and John, they represent humanity, normal human beings who will be alive when the kingdom begins. And it will be these human beings who will repopulate the kingdom. Why? Because those who are in the resurrection, remember Jesus said those who are accounted to be in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage they will not be married, so therefore they will not repopulate. Where will this great population come from? The normal human beings. There will be Jews in the kingdom who will repopulate the nation of Israel. There will be Gentiles, Matthew chapter 25, who after the judgment of the Gentile, they, those righteous Gentiles who come into the kingdom will repopulate the kingdoms for the Gentile nations. Okay. But nevertheless, enough said about that. So Jesus touches his disciples, tell him not to be afraid. God says simply to hear him again. So much symbolism involved in that. That is, it's not about Moses anymore. It's not about the prophets anymore. It is about the word that comes from Jesus. Hebrews one and one, the final word that is given to the son. Okay. But anyway, so now this event after the disappearance of Moses and Elijah and this prefigurement that we have of the kingdom, it leaves a bit of confusion for the disciples, even namely Peter. And so Peter says, the disciples began to ask Jesus, they said, I thought that they said that, um, I'm sorry, let me deal with this point first. Jesus told them, tell nobody about this particular event until he has risen from the dead. So let me deal with that. The reason is this, Jesus has just given them a prefigurement of the kingdom, okay? Go all the way back to what we've been saying concerning Matthew chapter 12 with respect to the Jewish people. The offer of the kingdom is off the table. So therefore, this event 
is not to be told. Why? Because do not put in the mind of the people that there is any instance, that there is any chance that Jesus is going to establish the kingdom again. Why? The offer of the kingdom has now been rescinded since the leaders and of course the people will reject Jesus, have rejected Jesus as the king. And Jesus is already talking about chapter 13, the new kingdom, the new kingdom consisting of the church. Okay. So the kingdom that Jesus will bring that he would have brought for the Jewish people, that Jewish kingdom is no longer on the table. So Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this until after Jesus has risen from the dead because after the resurrection from the dead, 40 days later, we know Jesus will ascend into heaven. So we don't have to worry about them thinking or even trying to press Jesus into establishing this kingdom. Okay. But nevertheless, this leaves in the mind of Peter and the disciples, some sort of a confusion. So the disciple began to ask Jesus concerning Elijah, because remember, Elijah was a part of that revelation of Jesus, Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus. And so they said, I thought that they said the scribes have always taught that Elijah has to come before the kingdom, because remember what Jesus just given them a preview of the kingdom. They are still confused. They don't understand it all. They don't understand it all. And they don't really realize that Jesus has given them simply a taste or a preview of the kingdom. They are thinking maybe the kingdom is about to come. But so with that idea of maybe the kingdom is about to be set up, they're saying the scribe said before the kingdom was to come, Elijah was to come first. So that their mindset still isn't quite right. And they don't understand that they have been given simply a taste or a preview. So they're saying if the kingdom is about to be set up, what happened to the coming of Elijah? That is Malachi chapter four. I think that's four and five when God promised the coming of Elijah before the great and terrible day, before the setting up of the kingdom. So they asked Jesus about that. Tell us about the, the teaching about the coming of Elijah. He had to come first, didn't he? Because this is what they taught. And Jesus verified the correct teaching. Indeed, Elijah must come first. But Jesus began to say, but I tell you that Elijah already came first and they did whatever they wanted to to Elijah. And that is that they killed him in the same manner that they will reject and kill the son of man. They will kill Jesus. And Jesus was speaking of John the Baptist. And this is what the disciples understood. When he said that Elijah must come first, they understood that spiritually, Jesus was speaking of John the Baptist. And as the people had rejected and even killed, we understand how John the Baptist died, John the Baptist, so will be the rejection and killing of Jesus himself. But the point here is this. Jesus says, Elijah indeed is coming first. So what am I trying to say here? The disciples, Peter, James, and John, are only being given a preview and taste of the coming kingdom of the Messiah. It 
has not come, it will not come yet. Okay. So therefore Elijah is still coming. He still must come. However, however, had the Jewish people, had the leaders of the people received Jesus in the first place as their coming king, when Jesus was doing all of these signs and wonders to prove indeed he was the Messiah, king of the Jews, had they received him as the king, then John the Baptist would have been a substitute for Elijah. You got it? That's why we see John the Baptist himself being prefigured as Elijah. How? Coming in the spirit and power of Elijah, even dressed as Elijah, eating food like Elijah. John the Baptist would have served as a Elijah if they had received Jesus in the first place. But since they did not receive Jesus and they killed John, indeed, Elijah must come. He will come before the setting up of the kingdom. Okay. I know I did a lot of prophetic talking. I hope you guys understood all of that, but let's just simply close out this particular section. So what was Jesus doing? He was giving a prophetic fulfillment of his last words in chapter 16. They will see the son of man in the glory of his kingdom. They saw what Jesus looked like when the kingdom would be set up, they basically saw a preview of that kingdom. They saw Jesus and what he would look like in his true nature in the kingdom. They saw what the kingdom would be represented of by those who had died and resurrected, those who had not died and had translated immortal bodies and the disciples themselves being representatives of the regular, as I like to say it, human beings who will live to repopulate the kingdom. So they got an idea of the kingdom. This led to uh, what? This led to the disciples wondering about the coming of Elijah. And what did Jesus say? Had the people, that is the Jewish people, received Jesus in the first place, John the Baptist would have been a substitute for Elijah. But since the Jewish people rejected Jesus as the Messiah, it leads to the necessity of Elijah coming in a future date. And then this future date would precede the second coming of Jesus when you will see the kingdom of Jesus, that is the Jewish kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom of the Messiah being set up in this state of permanency. And what I mean by permanency is the true fulfillment of that coming at this particular time. Okay. But anyway, so let's just simply conclude that section. No doubt you guys may have a, a lot of questions about prophetic fulfillment, prophecies and revelations concerning those things to the, which we cannot get into explicitly at this time. All that stuff is covered all over the Bible, but in a general sense, I did want you to understand a, a general picture of the kingdom. Okay. Enough babbling on that. Let's continue. Verse 14. And when they came, when they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus falling on his knees before him saying and him and saying, 
Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him and the demon came out of him and the boy was cured at once. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith, for truly, I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible to you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. OK, let's stop and talk about that particular section. So now leaving from the mountain, they come into a crowd. Once again, what do we have to remember here? Remember the holistic theme of what I've been teaching you ever since the rejection of Jesus. Remember that no more signs that he is the king, no more offering himself as the king. What has he been doing? Concentrating on training his disciples. So see this in the same venue. He is continuing to train his disciples. We just saw his teaching that uh, he will, he is indeed the Messiah and that he will bring in the kingdom. And we can see this to buttress their faith. Don't lose faith because I've been talking about my upcoming death and resurrection. Don't lose hope because I've been telling you that hold on. Indeed, I am the Messiah. Let me show you I am the Messiah. So hold on to your faith. Okay. So again, we have another instance of faith. He is training them in their faith. So what do we have? There's a crowd. A man comes to Jesus asking him to cast out the demon from his son because his son is having epileptic seizures. And these seizures often come at times when his son is near fire and his son is near water, almost about to burn him or drown him. And all of this is coming because his son is demon possessed. And so the man has earlier come to Jesus's disciples to cast out the demon, but the disciples could not cast the demon out. They couldn't cure the boy. And so the man is now coming to Jesus and he's imploring Jesus to cast the devil out. That is to heal his son. And so Jesus upbraids the man and there is a sense, there is a sense of the upbraiding of the disciples. And so what does Jesus call him? Unbelieving and a perverted generation, unbelieving in Jesus, perverted. They're not trusting in Jesus, believing in his, in his, in Jesus's messiahship. And so Jesus now begins to cast the devil out of the boy's son. But let me talk about the question that, that what Jesus asked them. How long shall I be with you? Now, the reason why I want to address that is ever since the confession of Peter in Matthew chapter 16, who, who, do, who do you say that I am? You are the Messiah. You are the Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus began to tell them about that. He must be uh, persecuted and be put to death 
and then he'll rise from the dead. From that point on, a part of the disciples training. Again, that's why I point to this particular question here. How long shall I be with you? He is not letting it die in the mind of the disciples, even as he speaks to this man, that he does not have long to be with them. What am I talking about? Training. In other words, since Jesus doesn't have long to be with his disciples, they really need to take these things to heart. They really need to get these lessons and truly learn from these lessons. And what is this lesson that Jesus is trying to train to teach the disciples about? About them having faith. Because what's important here? Notice as early as Matthew chapter 10, Jesus already gave the disciples power to cast out the demons. So this is, this is important to understand. Jesus has already given them authority over the demons, power over the demons, but they have run upon, they've come to a particular demon that they cannot cast out, even though they have been given power over the demons already. They still can't cast this one out. And this is when Mark, Mark tells us, that's that word, genos, genos. This kind, this kind, that's the word, genos. This type of demon cannot be cast out except by prayer. Okay, let me just deal with it here. So, as Jesus cast out this demon, how long shall I be with you? He's letting them know. He's training them. I'm not going to be with you guys long. Learn these things. Then he says, how long shall I put up with you? That's the kind of rebuke that you have. He cast out the demon from the, the, uh, from the boy. And we have this talked about in other gospels. Okay. As he cast out this particular demon, even the demon tried to take the boy one more time. But nevertheless, that when I say take the boy, that simply means he caused him to fall to the ground. And as the man said, he would make him foam, foam on the ground and go into convulsions. And when he cast the, cast the demon out, the disciples came to Jesus privately wanting to know why couldn't they drive out the demon? And this is what I'm talking about. This is a part of the lesson. Even though Jesus gave them power over the demons already, there were two things to be seen here. That all demons are not the same. All demons power or authority are not the same. Some demons are more powerful and aggressive than others. Even though the disciples at earlier times could cast demons out by a word, there, there are particular demons like this one who cannot be simply cast out by a word. They must be cast out by a word as well as prayer. So Jesus is teaching the disciples in their lives, in their walk with him. Not only must this walk be categorized by faith, but also their continuing walk with him, with God, must be categorized by prayer. Just like Jesus himself had a life of prayer, had a relationship of intimacy, an ongoing relationship of closeness with God, 
They could not simply rely on past things or past gifts or past power. They themselves had to have an ongoing close relationship with God through prayer. And this will build their faith. And that's why Jesus says you must have faith. Where does this faith come from? What builds this faith? It is prayer. It is an ongoing relationship that with God through prayer that builds a relationship of faith. And it gives a faith of genuineness. It gives a faith of such purity, such purity that what? Even if you have a little faith, you will be able to do great things. You will be able to say unto this mountain, be removed from this place and cast over here. And whatever you say shall be done. So what is the essence? The essence here is this. Jesus is teaching his disciples. Notice again, the theme of training them. It's not a one-time event of me giving, simply giving you authority. May you, my disciples, and even for us today, you must maintain a relationship ongoing with the Father through prayer, through prayer. And it is this prayer, ongoing relationship that you have with the Father that builds that instills the purity of your faith. And in this purity of simple faith, you will be able to do great things. So Jesus is teaching the disciples of maintaining an ongoing relationship with God through prayer. All right, now let me deal with this other point too. And this is a theological point uh, in verse number 21 of math. And the reason why I say 20 theological point, but this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. This kind does not go out by prayer and fasting. Now, the reason why I don't want to deal with that verse as it is written is because in some of our oldest manuscripts, remember this, the Bible was not written in English. It comes from Greek. Okay. The Greek manuscripts of the new Testament. As in our oldest manuscripts for the book of Matthew, this particular statement is not found. Now, in Mark, this statement is found, but it says, but only by prayer. It does not say by fasting in Mark, it says by prayer. So point is, but this kind does not go out by prayer and fasting. Verse number 21 is not in the best manuscripts. And if you notice, you'll probably see that notation in your own Bible that this verse is not found in Matthew. However, this verse is found in Mark, but it leaves off the word fasting. It simply says this kind does not go out except by fasting. So to make the point as a whole is Jesus was simply letting us know that there are certain types of demon that cannot go out except cannot be cast out except by when we pray, not about the fasting part, but by when we pray. 
Okay. And we understand the whole idea of what I was trying to teach you here earlier is the training of the disciples. What? Ongoing closeness with God through prayer. And it is through this prayer, constant consistency in their prayer life that helps them build up faith so that they can do even the impossible things. And that's the point of that section. Okay. Now let's move to verse number 22. While they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Okay. And that's kind of speaks for itself once again, but let me just simply say it like I need to say it again, ever since the confession of Peter, the continuation of their training, what Jesus wants them to understand and realize, he keeps telling them again and again, I am going to go to Jerusalem there to be delivered up. That is the idea of betrayed and put to death. But then his death is not the ultimate thing. He will be resurrected from the dead. So he keeps teaching them what he must suffer in Jerusalem, but that suffering is not the end of all things. It will be glory in the end in his resurrection from the dead. So he keeps preparing them. Let me say it that way. He's constantly preparing them for what he is have to, going to have to go through in Jerusalem. And you know the amazing thing? Even though he keeps preparing them, they still just don't get it. They don't get it. And even when the event actually take place, his crucifixion, they still won't get it. It's amazing how they had this blind spot. They just didn't get it. But I'm not going to harp on that. But he's training them about these things. And notice how that they are grieved. Why are they grieved? Because it seems that the only thing that they are concentrating on is the fact that he says he's going to be put to death. He always tells them he's going to be resurrected, which should give them joy. But we don't want him to die. But nevertheless, death will not have power over him. But they can't seem to go beyond the thought of him dying. And so therefore, what do we see here in the end of this section? They are deeply grieved, deeply grieved at the very thought of dying. And remember, even as we teach through all of these things, this whole concept of the Messiah dying, dying, we understand dying for our sins. But for them, the Messiah, they thinking he is to remain. Once he gets there, he's supposed to set up the kingdom and he's supposed to stay with them. This is what they were looking forward. So the whole point of Jesus keep talking about the death it's like water on a duck's back. It's just not resonating with them, even though Jesus is faithfully teaching them, training them, preparing them for it. Okay, let's bring the chapter to a close. 24. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon, from whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax from their sons or from strangers? When Peter said from strangers, 
Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open his mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and for me. Okay. <laughs> so now, now we come as Jesus, we're now in Capernaum. They're now in Capernaum. Remember it was Capernaum where Jesus did some of his greatest miracles. And while he was there, you had representatives from the temple and no doubt they're always looking to find fault with Jesus to find a reason to accuse him. So they come to Peter and ask Peter, why doesn't G why Jesus has not paid his temple tax at this time? You see, according to Exodus chapter 30, I believe the law commanded the law. And it's a beautiful thing. The law commanded that each Jewish man above the age of 20 from 20 years of old and age should pay a temple tax of a half shekel. And this is what they mean by the two drachma. The two drachma was uh, uh, equivalent to a half shekel. So Jesus at this time apparently had not paid his temple tax for that year. So they came to Peter asking him, why hadn't Jesus, doesn't Jesus pay his temple tax? And Peter simply responded, yes, of course, Jesus pays the temple tax. And so when, G, when Peter came into the house, Jesus, and now here's where Jesus dips into that divine power of his. He knew what had taken place. He knew what had already taken place. And he asked Peter before Peter even opened his mouth. He says, Peter, I got a question for you. From whom do the kings of the world collect taxes from? Where the customer pulled, where do they get the taxes from? Their own, their own sons or from others, from strangers? And Peter answered, they don't get taxes from their sons. They collect taxes from other people, from strangers. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. So the whole idea of what Jesus is trying to say is this. And it's a beautiful thing. Jesus is the king. He is the king. And the disciples are the sons of the kingdom. So naturally, as the king and the disciples, as sons of the kingdom, they are free from the duty tax. In other words, Exodus 30, the collecting of the temple tax. Jesus even if he did not pay the temple tax, he still did not disobey the commandments of Moses. Why? The king as well as his sons are free from the temple tax. He has done nothing wrong. He is free of the temple tax. He doesn't have to pay the temple tax. Why? He is the king and the disciples are the sons of the kingdom. But nevertheless, he's not going to make a big deal out of this. That's what he says. So that we don't cause them and these Jewish people who are looking for reasons to condemn Jesus so that we don't cause them to stumble. He tells Peter what? And I like it. Let's look at it even further. Go down and do what you like to do, that is to fish. And in the first fish that you catch, open the mouth and there you'll find a shekel. 
the shekel is equivalent to the two drachmas times two. So the shekel is if, uh, equivalent to four drachmas. Four drachmas. When you open the mouth of the fish, take the full shekel, pay your tax as well as my tax and give it to them. So the shekel is equivalent. So you pay the taxes for both Peter and Jesus. But the point is, so that you do not offend them. In other words, not paying of these two drachmas of the temple tax. We're not going to even make a big issue out of that. Let's just go ahead and pay the temple tax anyway. We're going to pay the temple tax even though as the king, me, Jesus, I don't have to pay the temple tax. And as the sons of the kingdom, my disciples, you don't have to pay the temple tax. Remember what the question did he ask? Did he ask Peter? From whom do the kings of the world take tax? Peter says they don't pay taxes and their sons don't pay taxes. Jesus should not pay the tax. The disciples should, should not pay the tax. They should be free from the tax. Jesus is not disobeying the law of Moses, but we're not going to make a big issue out of this. Just go and pay the tax. But the point that I want to bring to you is this. When Jesus gave Peter the money, when he gave Peter the money to pay the tax, how did he give Peter the money? Notice Peter was not given the money for naught. Peter was not given the money for nothing. He had to do something or in other words, I don't want to beat it to death. I've already, I'm already long enough, but let me just simply say it this way. And I hope you guys get what I'm trying to say. He had to work for it. There is the principle of work that was still involved. Go fish and the first fish that you catch, take that and then pay our tax. He could have told Peter, go and just look on the ground and because the money had to be, he made the money simply to appear. But he simply could have told Peter, look on the ground, look at that right there, take that shekel. Something without work. He could have told him to do something without work. And this is the beautiful thing. I love it so much, saints, because the principle of work is always involved. God never desires for us to think to get something for nothing. We as God's people should always have the mindset of work. What does even the apostle Paul says? For if a man does not work, neither shall he eat. That is, if a man having the ability to work and to gain for himself, if he refuses to work, nobody should put food into his mouth. Neither shall he eat. The principle of work, Peter had to work. He had to go and fish. And then after working, what did God do? Provided for him. The principle is set for us at all times. We should always have a mind to work. And when we work, what? God will provide for us. And notice that's the principle that Peter sets here. And let me do a little preaching here since I didn't do a lot of it in this video. We see this even as early as the providing of manna from heaven. I believe that's what Exodus chapter 17. What I believe that is it. I'm hoping I got that right. But the whole point of it is what in the provision of manna, when God made bread rain from heaven, what did they have to do? They had to get out of their tents, go out into the camp 
and pick up the bread. They still, even though God rained manna from heaven, they still had to go out in the morning and work and pick up the bread. There's still the principle of work involved. God will provide, but God provides when we go out and work for it. Okay. All right. Enough of that. Thanks for joining me. Exodus chapter, I'm sorry, <laughs> Matthew chapter 17. And what did we see in Matthew chapter 17? It's very simple. We saw first the fulfillment of Jesus' words at the end of chapter 16. The son of man in his kingdom. He wanted to encourage them, even though he talked about his death and also resurrection. Don't be discouraged. He is still the Messiah the Messiah who will bring in the kingdom. Let me show you this. Let me give you a preview of what I would look like. And that's what he does in the first part of chapter 17. Then coming to the crowd again, what the whole idea of all of these things, training of the disciples. Then again, what coming to the crowd and this man with the son who is demon possessed that the disciples could not cast out that kind of demon. What is that training lesson teaching them? maintaining a relationship with God in prayer by maintaining this ongoing relationship, prayer relationship with God. What does it do? It solidifies. It increases their faith. And in the purity of just a little faith, my disciples, you will be able to do great things. And then finally, as he again, once again, does what? He continuously remind them that he has to die and be resurrected from the dead. And then finally, he teaches them that as the king, he is exempt from taxation. The whole point is, even though rejected as king, he is still king. And also, too, in the final point, let me say this about the paying of the temple tax. He teaches a principle even for us today. One that we can see that Paul derived from Romans chapter 13, that even as God's people living in this earth, we are the princes of the kingdom. We are the children of the king, but nevertheless, in this world, we still must pay taxes as, as Jesus taught here in this thing so that we don't cause them to stumble. Peter pay our taxes. Paul, Romans 13, tribute to whom tribute is due. That is, God's people should pay their taxes. All right, enough of all of that. Thanks for joining me in chapter 17. And remember guys, we always need your support in the ministry. So if you haven't began, now be a good time to start. Look down in the link in the description below and you'll see what you can do to support the ongoing teachings of this ministry. But join us next time as we continue in chapter 18 and you'll begin to see as we've been talking all along. Remember, as Jesus just gave them in chapter 17, a preview of the upcoming kingdom. And notice in that preview, what did we see? Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus and then all of a sudden they disappeared and the voice of God saying, hear my son, Jesus was alone. Remember the whole point, the disciples 
they just couldn't they just couldn't get over it they thought that the kingdom is about to come they thought that jesus was about to establish the kingdom they could not get over the fact they couldn't understand the kingdom program that is die resurrect from the dead ascend into heaven and later on in time come back and establish the king they just didn't get it we are going to see in chapter 18 even further proofs that they didn't get the understanding about the kingdom when it should be established and blah 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 tweet 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 as we even talk about certain instances about what the kingdom people should be like they will begin to even quarrel over who will be the greatest in the kingdom because what they're expecting jesus to set up the kingdom but we're not going to go into all of that just join me next time as we get into chapter 18. <laughs> See you then.